Amen. All right. We are in Galatians chapter 2 this week. Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start, and we're going to read through this text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then really talk about what Paul is doing in this section of Galatians. We'll recap the last couple of weeks as well, but let's start with the text this morning, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through 10. It says this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel of the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry of the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. I want you to think this morning about how we tell stories. This is something that we do from childhood. We've heard stories, we, we, we read stories, we watch stories, and then ultimately we tell stories of our experiences. I want you to think about how you tell stories. There's these things, these moments, these, these actions, these people that participate in the story, all of these things give the story a character and a flavor and a color, and it draws people in to understand what happened. In reality, I would imagine that if, if you're alive in 2001, 21 years ago on this day, you've probably told that story to someone. You probably told the story of when it happened, 7.14 a.m. For me, I, I was woken up by my freshman in college, my freshman year at Troy, woken up by the old... You're going to think this is nuts. There's no students in here, but they used to plug phones into walls. And this thing's loud when it rings in that cinder block dormitory, right? That phone rings, and it's my roommate, Jared. It was his dad calling to let us know to turn on the TV. This is what's going on. I don't know why he didn't have faith that we wouldn't be up and ready for our 8 o'clock classes. Uh, nevertheless, he calls. That's when it happened, right? I can remember that. Also remember who was there with me. It was him. And then I remember going to class, seeing that they were canceled, going to the CAF. Everybody gathered around these televisions and watching what had taken place. All of these things that marked that moment. 
I bet you can remember where you were. And I bet you remember at some point, whether it was a day that this important and this powerful, that, that we literally just say the day, 9-11, and people know what it means. Or another moment in your life, you've told stories like that. Now, here's the thing. When we read passages of Scripture, when you and I read a a block of Scripture, a passage like we just read, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, quite often it feels distant to us. Now, granted, what we just read didn't happen 21 years ago. It happened 2,000 years ago. That's when it was written, okay? It was written in another language, it's given to us, it's translated, it's written off a scroll. This is not printed out, right? Quite often we read passages like this and it seems distant to us. It seems strange to us. It seems foreign to us. But here's how it's near to us. And Paul is doing something really, really incredible in these 10 verses. Here's what's happening. Paul's giving an account of his experience and he's telling a story the same way that you and I do. When we look at these 10 verses, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see when it was. You're going to see where he was. You're going to see who he's with, and you're going to see what happened. That happened, all of that happens and takes place in this passage, and it's all to explain the importance and the significance of the gospel, and it all for Paul boils down to this. What makes us alive and what teaches us how to live And Paul's going to show that the order matters. What makes us alive and what teaches us how to live. So here's where we are in Galatians. The title of the series is called No Other Gospel. This is Paul's ultimate and chief concern to help people understand that that salvation is bound up in, is wrapped up in, is completed in the very life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on our behalf, filling fulfilling rather the law of the old covenant has been helped us understand last week this is all done in christ that our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and that there is no other good news apart from this so week one the first part of galatians chapter one we looked at the source that this gospel is from god it's what jesus has done not what we do and it's sufficient in nature that there's nothing else needed for salvation apart from faith in christ that this is the message of the gospel that we're reconciled to god that jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross that's the gospel And yet Paul's writing with this urgency, with, quite frankly, an anger, a deep concern for these people who are in this area where he's preached the gospel and seen people come to know the Lord, the church growing, this area in which people are slipping back into believing that there are other things that are needed than experiencing God's grace through faith. Really, really helpful For us to recognize and see, it's been helpful to see last week that that Paul's concerned there's a giant misunderstanding. That the church doesn't understand that Christ has paid it all, that Christ has done it all. Instead, they're being told by these false teachers that have come in, and this is what Paul talks about again in this passage. They've come in and said, here's the thing. You believe in Jesus you've got to do these things that we were commanded to do. 
See, the belief is good, but there's more. There's things that you don't understand. Perhaps all these people that are outside of Jewish history and outside of the Judaic faith and lineage that, that ultimately culminates in Jesus, circumcision, festivals, holy days, all of these types of things, rules that, that these people believe are meant to be kept. They have to be kept. The law ultimately became for these false teachers what they were using to discredit Paul and to draw people in to ultimately not make them like Jesus, but make them like themselves. This is very, very dangerous. So Paul tells his story, and this compelling set of verses, he says, when it happened... His experience in Jerusalem, where he was, who he was with, and what happened to all culminate in this thing, that there's nothing else needed other than the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Trust in, rest in what Christ has done. John Stott puts it this way, and I think this is really helpful, and it's a good framework of what we've heard over the past couple of weeks, and trying to understand and make sense of the reality that there are those that are saying, okay, you can believe in Jesus, but what about all the cultural things? What about all of the things in Judaism that, that, that God has designed, that he set us apart for? Stott says it in this way, because this is what the passage addresses, and we're going to get into it in verse 1 in a moment, but these Jerusalem leaders that Paul had met with, he said it was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles. So Paul has been preaching to all of these people who don't have a Jewish background, who, who, are, who are Greeks and who are Romans and who are all of these people that come from a different cultural and historical experience. It was one thing for these leaders to say, look, yes, the Lord can save these people, these Gentiles, but could these leaders approve of commitment to the Messiah, Jesus, without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ, not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God? What's he saying here? He's saying that God's vision for his family is so much bigger than what we see. That God's vision for his family is for people of all cultures and times and places and races and previous creeds that adopted instead. That God's family is for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. No matter their background, no matter they come, where they come from. And this is what Paul is very, very concerned with in this passage. And he's describing this really through the importance of bringing this one Titus along. So if you look at chapter 2 in Galatians and you look at verse 1, you see Titus mentioned. And when Titus is mentioned in verse 1, it almost seems like he's an add-on, like he's an addition. He's just kind of like bringing up the rear. This guy is the caboose of Paul's journey, okay? Look at what it says. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So that seems like the crux of the sentence. That seems like the important thing that Paul's trying to get across, that this is what happened and this is when it happened. Paul goes to meet with these leaders, these people who are apostles. We're going to see that in the text. With Barnabas, and then he says, taking Titus along with me. 
But Titus isn't an add-on. And in fact, his presence is incredibly important to this story. It's actually a focal point of Paul's story. Because Titus is a Greek. He's not circumcised. He does not look like and have the same flesh as all of these people who are denoted as the very people of God. There's a reason that Paul brings him on this journey. I want you to think about this. Titus, in the presence of all of these apostles, people who have been with, who have seen Jesus, who come from a Jewish history and background, these are the people of the perfect pedigree in their eyes. Titus is not forced to adopt the circumcision that they've experienced. He's not forced to adopt this. And look, nobody says it better than Keller, so we'll just let him say it, all right? This is what he says. The acceptance of Titus by Jewish believers was a vivid illustration of this principle of salvation by grace through faith. Here's what happens. That an individual becomes spiritually clean and acceptable through Christ and not through deeds or rituals. And then he tells us practically what this means for you and I today. We need to keep repeating this truth to ourselves and each other just as the New Testament did. Gentiles could become full members of the people of God without becoming Jewish in custom or culture. The acceptance of Titus was a radical public statement of the implications of the gospel. So Titus might just sound like, in this passage, a name. One that's an add-on that's a part of the journey. But instead, he's the illustration, he's the picture of the fact that Christ has truly died, even as Stott said, even as the text says, for the whole world. That Jesus has died for all. When we think of Bible verses, quite often a number of us would go to John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Now, that w- the word world means different things. When we hear it, we think of a planet of 8 billion people. That's typically what we think of when we say the world. But ultimately, in that passage, in John's gospel, when John writes the world, he's describing all of humanity. And he's saying, for God so loved all of humanity who was in rebellion against him. That's what the world means. It means people like you and I, who though designed for a relationship with God, sinned. And turned away from him and sought to make ourselves our own gods. And sought to love things that were created more than the creator. That's what the world in that moment means. And what Paul is saying here is that that world and those people who are part of that rebellion include people from every tribe and every tongue and every race and every background imaginable. And you know what makes somebody saved? You know what makes somebody experience God? Not what they do, but what's been done for them. And Titus is the picture of this because salvation is not about what we do. Instead, it's about faith in what Jesus has done for us. This is the beauty and the majesty and the wonder and the mystery of the gospel. That quite frankly, 
I can look to you and boldly and confidently say, and, I, and I, there's so many of you, I love all of you, but there's so many of you that I like know and you know I love you and I've been to your house and I've eaten your food and we've spent time together and I've laughed with you and I've cried with you and I can tell you, my friend, you are not good enough to earn God's favor. And those of you that are new, you're like, if this is the people he likes, right? But here's the reality. We're not good enough to earn God's favor. We rebel and we've turned from him at every turn. So where's the hope? Where's the beauty, the mystery, the grandeur? It's this. It's that all that we couldn't accomplish by the law, all that the law demanded that we could not provide in our flesh, Christ has done for us. And Paul is desperate to help the Galatian church understand this. Look at verses 2 and verses 5. This is what he says. He wants to proclaim this gospel. He, he receives this revelation from the Lord. He goes up to Jerusalem to ultimately meet. You're going to look down into verse 9 and you're going to see names like John and Cephas. And that's Peter and James. These are, these are the apostles. He goes to meet with them in order to make sure that he's not running in vain. Because he wants to, look into verse 5, preserve the truth of the gospel. Here's what's happening and here's why this setting is so important. Here's why Paul is so concerned to say, this is where I was and this is when it happened. And this is who I was with. There are all these, these false teachers, these Judaizers, these folks that are coming in saying, you can believe in Jesus, but you got to be circumcised. You can believe in Jesus, but you got to keep these laws. You can believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be a part of this thing, you got to do this stuff too, this extra stuff. Paul is concerned to say, look, these guys are telling you that I'm not preaching from a revelation that I've received from God. They're saying that I'm basically just parroting what I've heard from the apostles what they've told me, and then I've kind of put my own spin on it or my own story. Just like last week when Paul was imploring them to understand that he's telling them the truth, what Paul is saying here in this moment is that what God has given me, it wasn't just given to me from these apostles in the sense that I heard it from them. It was a real experience that I had on the Damascus Road with the Lord. God called me from the very lips of the Savior. He spoke these things to me. It's him who has life. Not completing these works because they've all been completed in Jesus. And so Paul is defending, much like Ben said last week, not only the message of the gospel, but himself as a part of it. His experience. He states that the revelation came from Jesus himself. So now... He's helping his hearers, those folks at Galatia, and, and, and many people who have basically heard these false teachers and said, well, he's not, he's not James, and he's not John, and he's not Peter. He's saying, you don't understand. I've been with these men. This is my story. Not only have I been with them, but look down into verse 6, and you're going to see something incredibly powerful. I've been with them, and here's what happened. I spent time with them. I engaged them, and those who seem to be influential, those, I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. They added nothing. They didn't change anything about Paul's gospel, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Everything that Paul was preaching, they didn't add a thing to it. 
Now, I want you to understand, Paul is speaking to these people and saying, these are the ones you revere. These are the ones who you regard as influential. And Paul's using his words in a very clever way in this moment where he's not being insulting surrounding them. But look what he says, those who seem to be influential, right? It almost sounds like a backhanded compliment or an acknowledgement of those who are perceived to be something that they're not. Instead, what Paul is doing is saying, your view of them is inflated because God does not show partiality. God does not see them as more important than anyone. Instead, they're brothers. There are co-laborers in this gospel. He's emphatically stating that this revelation came to him. And you look down into verse 9 and you see this, that they gave the right hand of fellowship to them. Now, this is not, this is not just a handshake and let it be, Right? That we're making a deal here and we've decided to set something up. This is much, much more than that. This is a cultural custom of genuine endorsement and support. Of real connection. This is like some blood brother stuff. This is deeply intimate and powerful. So Paul is saying... In this passage, if in Galatians 1, Paul is saying he didn't learn the gospel from these Jerusalem apostles, he now demonstrates that they didn't add anything to his gospel. This is big stuff. Because Paul is making a very clear case that here's the reality. The source has come from the Lord, and yet those who you revere have said we have the same gospel, and it's true. And there is nothing that is necessary to be added to it. There is no circumcision. There is no additional thing. And you might say, I don't even get all this stuff about circumcision. And believe you me, we're not going to talk about it in depth today, okay? But the point is, we want to slip back into the old covenant that's already been fulfilled. We want to slip back into law-keeping. Because here's the thing that you and I are really, really good at. We found these things that we're good at and that we believe God delights in, and we run to that stuff and we say, I'm going to do this because if I do this, then I feel some sense of justification. That I have a good standing before God. Right? Pick a moral thing. Pick a temporal thing. Think about that thing that, quite frankly, you know you're good at keeping. That rule you're good at keeping and that others are not. Because you've got that brother or that friend or that coworker or that person in your life that struggles with that thing that you don't struggle with. And you want to step back into this place where you say, I'm going to allow that to justify me. I'm going to allow that to define me. Ultimately, what you're really saying is, and you, don't, you would never say it in this way, and you would never think it in this way, but this is what you're doing. You're saying, I'm going to allow that to save me. That's going to save me. Me keeping that law is going to save me. But here's the reality. We are deceived when we run back to the law as a means of justifying ourselves. The righteous live by faith. And this is the point of Galatians. This is what Paul is trying to say. He's like, everything that you're called to do, all of the laws that you long to keep, 
You can't live this stuff if you're not alive. The way that we can live is only a result of being made alive. When we talk about the law, these things like circumcision, all these types of things, we, we hear law in this very judicial way, right? We've watched Law and Order. Somebody has. There's like 50 of them. Like, we've watched these things. We've seen court. We've experienced it, perhaps, in our own life, this judicial system where there is a rule that is meant to be followed, and if it is broken, there are consequences. We've seen people be held up in court for something and then ultimately be justified because they were innocent. They were blameless. Here's the thing. When Paul teaches on the law, and specifically in this passage, and the things that he's describing around circumcision, we also have to remember that when we read all of Scripture, that law itself doesn't just mean a rule. It actually means, go back to Deuteronomy, you're going to see that it means it's the very teaching of God. So in the Old Testament, quite Often, and quite frankly, when you see that word law, it really does mean the teaching of God, the wisdom of God. So what does this mean? It's not just rules that are put in place for you and I to follow. It's not only God's authority, it's his wisdom, it's his love, it's his care. These are the ways in which we're called to live. We can look at the Old Testament, we can see sacrifice after sacrifice. And here's the reality. You can look into your life and you can see sacrifice after sacrifice too. Things that you're doing over and over again to try to get better. To try to please God. These things that you'll do, you'll say, if I'll just do this, then God will be satisfied, satisfied with me. If I'll just do this, then God will be happy with me. If I'll just do this, here's the reality. That is living from a mindset of being dead and trying to do things when you're not alive. And that's nuts. It's crazy. Paul is concerned with the order here. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, do these things, live unto the Lord, follow the teaching of the scriptures and Christ has fulfilled circumcision. They don't have to be circumcised. But look, there are commandments that God has given. And we're meant to follow those things. We're meant to live those things. But we can only do it once we've been made alive. We can only do those things once we've been born. What Paul is saying is that this is your freedom. Look into verse 4. These false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They might bring us into slavery. All these people saying, go do these things and you'll be alive. And Paul says, no. Trust in Christ. Rest in what Christ has done. This is the gospel. What Christ has done in his life, in his death, his actual burial, and his resurrection means life for us. And because of that life, because of trusting in that life, now I can live not as one trying to earn salvation, but as one who's already experienced it in Jesus. And now I get to do these things by the power of the Spirit and just glorify God. 
to just reveal to the world his goodness, his mercy, and quite frankly, do what Paul has done up to this point and tell the story of how God saved him. Tell the story to others. You read through these 10 verses, and it seems broken at times. It seems convoluted. It seems strange, maybe. But here is the reality of what's happening in this moment. Paul tells where he was. He says, I go to Jerusalem, and this is who's with me. It's Barnabas and Titus. And we go and we meet with the apostles. And I shared with them the revelation that I had from God, what God had done. And they came alongside me and recognized that the gospel that I'm preaching, that all of hope, that all of life is found in Jesus Christ. And they didn't change a thing. They didn't add a thing. They didn't say that circumcision or any other thing is a part of this. Instead, it's just trust in. It's just belief in. Rest in what Jesus Christ has done. This is what the New Testament, even as Keller says, teaches. Look into Romans 4. These Judaizers, one of their heroes would be Abraham. Abraham would be their hero, the father in so many ways of this faith. But look into Romans 4 and see what Paul says. How is Abraham justified? Was it according to his works so that he has something to boast about? No. Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at that passage in Hebrews 11. We call it the hall of faith. Remember Hebrews 11? That chapter begins with that incredible passage that helps us understand what faith is. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see, right? And then it goes on to talk about these incredible people throughout the scriptures And for each one, it says, by faith, by faith, by faith. It was not about the things that they did. It was about the the faith they had in the one who was faithful to them. The God who was faithful to them. So what does all this mean for us? What do these verses mean? What does it mean for Paul to go to Jerusalem? For him to end up in this place where he has the right hand of fellowship? What does it mean for us? Stories, the experiences that we share when we tell others about where we were and when we were and what we were doing and who was with us, stories are something that that we can't escape. Stories are something that we naturally do. It's part of being human. It's really our existence, and I've, I've read on this some recently, and, and one of the most amazing things that I've found across just a, a litany of people writing about why we're so obsessed with motion picture movies, and why we're so obsessed with the song that tells a story, and why we're so obsessed with, with the popular fiction novels, or why we're so obsessed with anything that tells a story, is that ultimately stories help us make sense of our lives. Stories help us connect with other people. And quite frankly, stories draw us into a place that removes us quite often from the chaos of our lives. Storytelling is this incredibly powerful thing. In this moment, what Paul is doing is he is telling the story not just to to win the understanding of these Galatian believers. 
He's ultimately telling them a story to help them understand that this story of Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection doesn't just make sense in this moment for now. It makes sense of everything. This is the story. Every single thing in our lives is about this story and how we are bound up in it. Brother and sister, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you're free. You're free. So much so that you don't have to go out into this world today and try to make your own story. And try to become something. You don't have to earn your salvation you don't have to go and try to get right with God. God has made you right with him through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. And then look down into verse 10, and you see this incredible thing. As Paul is the one who's going to go to the Gentiles, the people who are, are not from a Jewish background, the uncircumcised, Paul's going to go to them and preach. And James and Peter and John are going to preach to the circumcised, they ask Paul of this as he goes into these places like Galatia. One thing, to remember the poor. And he says it was the very thing I was eager to do. That might seem like a strange thing to close this passage with. This big story that Paul tells all these people of all these things that are happening and at the end, it might even kind of sound like that Titus thing, like this just throwaway or this just addition, like, oh, but also remember the poor. But it's actually much more poignant and much more present and perfect than that. This is what it is. It's a helpful reminder that when we have freedom in Christ, when we rest in Christ, when there's no additional thing, that remembering the poor is not something that we do to earn God's love. We do it because we've experienced God's love. It's not just something that I should do. It's something that I can't not do. Paul is trying to shape the Galatian church into people who are gospel people. People who understand and are marked by Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. That they believe in the gospel. That they live in the reality of the community of the gospel together. And that they ultimately live it out. They reveal in love what Christ has done for him. So what does that look like? It looks like remembering the poor. And quite frankly, you need to know this. And we don't say this enough. But when, when you are confronted with something, an opportunity like Give United. Or, or just challenged to give to the church. And you need to know that, that we give to the poor. When you give to the ministries of our church, we're giving to the poor. We did it this week. We worked with three local organizations to meet the needs of folks in our community that are struggling, that are hurting. You have neighbors that you can go to, people around you. Look, kids in your classroom that have needs, right? Real needs. And we got opportunities all around us to minister to the poor. And in doing so, tell them the story of what Christ has done for us. I'm free to go love anybody and everybody because I'm not trying to earn love anymore. Christ has given everything to me. Could we be people that are gospel people this week and go do that? Will we give to the ministries 
that God has, has set up and established in his church, would we meet physical needs with ministries around us? Would we go to the hurting and help them because we have experienced the goodness and the blessings that have flown from God? Can we do that together this week? I believe we can. Let's ask the Lord to do that by the power of his spirit in us. And as our worship team comes, uh, let's take an opportunity to pray together and respond to God's word. Heavenly Father, all of life that we have in you is grace through faith. Father, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. We are prone to wander and we are prone to wake even on days like today and say, what do I need to do? Father, would you remind us that what we need to do is rest in what Christ has already done for us. This is good news that we're free we're free to love our neighbor, that we're free to care about those around us, that we're free from attempting to earn salvation. Father, you've given it to us in Jesus. Would you cause us to rest in that, to embrace that, to celebrate in that? And as a result, Father, demonstrate your love to those around us. God, would you protect our church would you not cause us in our own cultural way here at Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea to add anything to the gospel? Father, all of the law is fulfilled in your son Jesus. Perfectly lived, died the death we should have died, was buried, Father, and truly resurrected by your hand, by the power of the Spirit. For us to have life, God, we want to live the right way, Father, but help us understand that that only comes from recognizing that you are the one who has made us alive. And God, may we glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.